I go to a lot of churches, and sometimes it's that headbanger stuff. <laughs> and and that's, that's, a, that's sometimes a little much. But, but I really am not a total fan of, of everything being old-fashioned either. And this is just a, a wonderful balance, and your, your group needs to know that, uh, that outsiders coming in feel that way too. All right. Uh, what time do we get out of here, Theoretic. <laughs> theoretically? Around 1.30. Around 1.30, okay. I, I, I appreciate that. That's good. Okay. Well, um, I, I'm going to be talking about ancient Egypt and um, the, the series that I do does take about six hours. We're, we're going to cut it short and... Uh, I don't know exactly how long we're going to take, but I'm going to try to wrap up in the... Did you say 12.15? Oh, you leave whether I'm done or not. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, I'm, going, I'm shooting for 12, but there ain't no way that's going to quite happen. Okay. Uh, this, this series is uh, all, all about the plagues, the time of Moses, uh, Sometimes I get a little bit into the time of uh, Abraham, and um, what we're looking at, actually, I hate this. Did did you see the degrees after my name? Did, okay, okay. Whew. I I really worry about people seeing that because if you don't have degrees after your name, you're really not supposed to talk about stuff like this. So uh, the, the degree was BTH and DTH. That would be um, Bachelor of Theology and Doctor of Theology. <laughs> don't I wish. <laughs> In my case, it means been there, done that. Okay. All right. But anyway, uh, this, this series uh, was my, my effort toward a master's degree that uh, I still haven't finished. And when I get a little older, I'll start working on it um, again. But anyway, uh, the, I was working on the creation stuff. And what happened was um, I was reading about the... Egyptian civilization starting as early as maybe 9,000 B.C., which would be about 11,000 years ago. Just incredible dates on it that wouldn't fit what I was finding in the creation series. So I went to Egypt a couple times with the idea of studying up on ancient Egypt. And I ran into things that just fascinated me, and so I spent uh, quite a bit of time just working on Egypt apart from the creation series. And that's what this is about here today. Uh, we're going to be looking at the sign of the serpent. We will not be able to get to them, but I want to tell you just a touch about the uh, plagues. The plagues were the Nile River, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the disease of the livestock, the boils, the hail and rain, thunder, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. These are the ten plagues. 
And the thing I was running into that uh, many scholars had all these ideas as to what those plagues were about. And every scholar I read was saying some different God, you know, that this plague was addressed to this God or this God or this God. And sometimes that God would be on the first plague or on the last plague or, on, you know, they were not the last one, but uh, maybe seven or eight. Anyway, it, it was more confusing than it was helpful. And what I come to find out that just fit perfectly, and the professors grading my papers agreed, was that these plagues were not addressed to a, an individual God or even two or three gods of some sort. They were addressed to categories of gods. In every temple in Egypt, ancient Egypt, they had eight categories of gods that were represented. Uh, those were the, the gods that are represented in the first eight plagues here. I'm going to show you just a little bit. Uh, the sign of the serpent actually was to all of the gods because every god whether it was a good one or a bad one, had a judgment form. And when any of these gods took on a judgment form, they became a serpent, which was a, a uraeus cobra, a certain kind of a cobra. So the sign of the serpent was intended to address all of the gods of Egypt. Then when you go into the plagues themselves, the Nile River uh, turning to blood had the representation for the creation gods. And all of the ancient Egyptian priests would uh, convince people that the Nile River was actually the lifeblood of all creation, that it was the lifeblood. And they would do on a monthly basis, they would take water from the Nile River into the temple, and then before the people, they would turn that water into blood. Um, and that convinced people that, yeah, it's really blood. Of course, it really messed them up when God made it blood. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't looking for that. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, the, the second plague was the plague of the frogs, and that had to do with benevolence and fertility. And uh, there's a whole lot to tell you about the frogs, but it, it's um, a specific category of gods. And then plague number three of the gnats, and in fact, uh, this could have been lice, it could have been mosquitoes, it could have been all of those and others, because the likelihood, the word in the Hebrew means uh, pesky, biting insects. So it could be any of those or more. And that represented uh, the idea of rituals and cleansings. There were gods that were in charge over the priesthood of uh, ancient Egypt, and they were... Uh, working with them to be clean and to conduct the temple rituals. Then uh, the plague of flies had to do with eroticism and pleasure, and there was a whole field of gods, hundreds of them, that related to that category. And then the livestock represented prosperity and famine and provision of different sorts, and this was a total category again. In all eight of these plagues, uh, there were about 2,000 gods that were represented by name, and the uh, Egyptians had other gods that they worshipped that did not have names, but there were 2,000 of them at least that had specific names. The boils 
had to do with the gods of plagues and healing. They could either make you sick or make you well, and it depended on how you were behaving, I guess. And then uh, plague number seven had to do with the hail, rain, and uh, lightning, and those gods were the gods of evil and punishment, and only evil and only punishment. Uh, Plague number eight had to do with locusts, and those locusts represented the category of heaven and rewards and peace. Now, all eight of those plagues would have taken care of all 2,000-plus of the gods of Egypt. And for me to say that this plague was about this god or this god or this god is not necessary because it was actually addressing them by their categories, and those gods that fit in multiple categories just got hit twice. (laughs) Uh, That's the way it worked out. But plague number nine had to do with the ultimate god of Egypt, the god of the sun, the Amun-Ra or Amun-Ra, whichever name you choose. And that was a real hang-up for me because the next plague is actually the second among the gods. It had to do with the son of the sun god, Horus. And I, I was questioning God's order because the first eight are in the perfect order that the temples would have had. Plagues number nine and ten were reversed. If he was going to go for the lesser god and then the greater god, he should have reversed those. But finally, I've come to the conclusion that the reason he did it in the order he did was he was doing it in the order of the actual existence of God, gods. And the first nine plagues are actually against things that aren't even gods at all. The only god they actually had in Egypt, and the closest thing to it, I'll say, was the Pharaoh. And that would be plague number 10 when he killed the firstborn. I'd love to share with you about that. Um, Actually, one of the ladies, who has that? A copy? Okay. If you want a copy of that, it's not very thorough, (coughs) but I was telling her she'd be uh, welcome to copy that and give it to people. So if you want a copy of that, you're welcome to have that. Um, Okay. Got a truck now. Um, They had the... uh, when the deceased went before the God of the judgment, the afterlife God was Osiris. And Osiris being the God of the dead, uh, every person who died had to go before Osiris. And Horus, the son of Ra, would go with you to, Hor- to Osiris. Uh, and when you were there, Horus would be your advocate if you were a good person. Now, What I found amazing is that in a whole lot of the ancient Egyptian uh, religion, there were strange little similarities to what we know about God and His Word. When we go before the Father, our advocate is the Son, Jesus. And somehow, uh, the devil had to know something uh, adequate to put that into the Egyptian religion. Or perhaps that came from Noah or his sons and uh, his grandson, Mizraim, was the father of ancient Egypt. You know, maybe that's how it got into the religion. I'm not real sure. But it's interesting 
that the son of the ultimate God would be the advocate for the uh, deceased person. Now, there were a lot of things that weren't similar. <clears throat> this one here was a doozy. Uh, they had to go through the uh, 12 hours or the 12 gates of the night. And actually, it, it would be like the 12 hours of the night. And they would have to do that in the boat of Ra. Now, <clears throat> in doing that, these gates were actually arches over the Nile River. And you would be going from... Uh, the upper Nile was south, and the lower Nile was north. You'll, you'll know that, right? So they, they had to go from uh, the upper Nile down to the delta, and they had to pass through these gates. But at every one of these gates, there was a serpent standing there, and literally standing there. And if the description is of any value at all, this serpent was at least 30 feet long. And his job, basically, was to keep people out of heaven who shouldn't be going. And if, if there was anything wrong with you that Osiris had missed, <laughs> then this guy would catch it. And he would just swoop down to the boat and devour whoever's in that boat. But if you knew the name of that serpent god, and if you knew his position, and you could say that without stuttering or anything, you had to say it with clarity, then you could pass him no matter what. And so what you wanted to do during your life on earth was learn the names of all these snakes and their position, you know, guardian of the first gate, second gate, and so on. At the last gate, there were two serpents, so there were 13 serpents you had to get past. But all of these serpents were judgment gods, and that's why they're serpents. Serpents represent the judgment. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I was telling somebody that these aren't going to connect. Um, it's going to look like a hodgepodge here, but it's because I'm trying to work in a bunch of different thoughts in a few minutes, and so I'm <laughs> skipping a bunch. But their idea of creation uh, was that the whole world was covered with water, and there, there are similarities here again, because when God created the earth, it was covered with water, and he drew the waters to one side to make dry land appear and so on. So for the uh, Egyptians, the first life forms on the earth were actually frogs. And what happened was they just showed up. Everything came from the original water, and the first life form was a frog. Now, <clears throat> that frog was created by a word of power. And what they believed was that if you were completely righteous completely righteous. You could speak a word, and whatever you said would come true. You could make it happen that way. And if anything was written in stone, in granite or marble, then whatever was written in stone like that would be true as long as that engraving lasts. So they believed that granite and uh, Marble were eternal truths. Anything written like that would be. So uh, the Egyptians had a view of what they called the words of power. And this is what happened. So in the darkness of that early ocean, a name rang out, and the name was New. And when the name rang out, then the first frog showed up. And, and when he showed up then, he swam around in the dark, I guess, just for however long. 
and became lonely enough that he decided he wanted to create a partner. And so he, uh, he just spoke out a, a name, and he said, Nut. And, and I didn't make this up. Uh, I, but he, he, he said, oh, uh, Nut. And then suddenly his wife showed up. So, so now we have Mr. and Mrs. Frog swimming around in the dark on a worldwide ocean. Uh, apparently that got to be tiresome, and so they decided to speak a boat into existence, and then they had a, a boat. Now, the, the Bible doesn't actually say what kind of boat it was, so I'm just speculating here. Um, but they, they created a boat by a word of power, and then they got up on the boat. So now we got two frogs on a boat in a worldwide ocean. Uh, they began having children. They ended up having six children. And then, uh, oh, yeah, three boys and three girls. Ah, uh, there they are. Okay. All right. So now we got mom and dad and three boys and three girls on a boat on a worldwide ocean. As weird as it is, there is some little similarity there to Noah and his family, and new is actually the Egyptian word for Noah. So um, that works very well. The only thing is, they were frogs. <laughs> and then the sun came up, and when the sun came up, it dried the waters sufficiently that land appeared, and they got off the boat and started whatever. <clears throat> okay. Then uh, there was a god by the name of Kanum, who was the creative power of Ra, and he fashioned the first human being from the mud of the ground. The Bible says God made the first person from the dust of the ground, so mud or dust. Uh, Kanum was the one. And then Thoth was the one who was um, the creative mind of Ra, and he gave Kanum the measurements that he needed for creating this first human being. Now, all I'm wanting you to see is that there are just crazy little things that have some weird connection with what we know. But let's do understand that the Egyptian religion, as evil and horrible as it was, came from the truth. And what happened was they didn't treasure the truth. Uh, we, I hope, treasure the truth because our, our salvation depends upon it. Uh, it is easy for our religion to be destroyed if we do not stick with God's Word. Then uh, there was a goddess by the name of Isis. Ra had created her, but she wanted to be equal with, uh, with Ra. And she knew that the only way to become equal to him was to know his secret name. He had a secret name that was never going to be told to anybody, and yet um, she wanted to learn that name. Her idea was that if he, he always came to the earth, to the garden, and when he came to this garden in Egypt at noon every day, then he would walk around the garden, go back up, and then he was the sun, so he would set on the west. Okay, her idea was that if she could have a serpent jump out and bite him on the heel, then he would 
become faint and begin to swell, and he would be dying. And then what she wanted to do was to have him whisper his name to her. She was going to wait until he couldn't do anything but whisper. And the reason is because if he could speak his own secret name with clarity, then he could heal himself. But if he's only whispering it, that's not adequate. So what she did was she came to the garden, and he came to the garden. And when he was walking through the garden, she commanded this serpent to jump out and bite him on the heel. And he'll get around to it soon. Okay. Um, But when that happened, he then whispered the name so that she could speak it with clarity. And then uh, that ended up healing Ra, and he went back to his position, and she became the queen of heaven and earth and the afterlife. So she was on a broader scale in a way than even Ra was. Um, I'm not going to take time with that. Now, when we look at this sign of the serpent, let's keep in mind that the serpent represents judgment and judgment gods. So when uh, Aaron and Moses went into the Pharaoh, Aaron threw his staff down in front of the Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. All right? I can tell you what kind of snake it became. It had to be a Uraeus cobra. It needed to be the judgment form, and that's what I think it was. Pharaoh then summoned his wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. And each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, all of this is much more huge than just the reading, because when, when uh, the staff of Aaron, actually Moses' staff, turned into a serpent, the Pharaoh had to have been taken back. Who's in charge of judgment anyway? Not this God that we know nothing about. It's the gods of Egypt. And here, this guy's coming in and doing that. So the Pharaoh basically just said, well, that ain't nothing. My magicians can do that. So they came in. Well, the reason they were able to do that was because they did this on a monthly basis in most of the temples of Egypt. They would take a staff that was very intricately carved in the shape of a serpent, and they would walk around with the temple animal. It could be a hyena, a hippo, it could be whatever. But whatever it was they were worshiping in that temple at that time, they would also be carrying this staff. The focus would be on the animal. You wouldn't look as hard at the staff. But the staffs were washed with a brown, uh, with a uh, aqua kind of a wash. Um, aqua is the color, I think. There's somebody who uses a, a different word for it, but it's, it's sort of a watery color. Anyway, um, these... Uh, the staff would be going around the temple. The people came into the temple, and there were pillars on both sides and across the back. The people had to stay outside the pillars. They were not allowed in the central area of it. 
So they would walk around by the pillars, and the people could see things, and they, they could reach out and touch the uh, temple animal and stuff like that. When they came back around, the priest would go back behind the altar, and he would switch that wooden staff for a live cobra. But the live cobra was also uh, washed with this uh, aqua kind of a look, and the was made to be shinier than normal. It, it uh, was adequate. So then when, uh, when he took a hold of it, he got it behind the jaws, and the uh, cobra would go into what is called a state of catalepsy, where they would be sort of semi-conscious, but they wouldn't be able to move, and they might, for the most part, be very stiff, could be. But anyway, he would then walk out to the center of the temple and hold it up and say this and that and the other and look like he had his staff still, but when he threw it down, it turned into a snake that was wriggling around, and the people were very impressed because anyone who has power over the judgment gods is someone to fear. That priest would be very, very revered. And so when they went in before Pharaoh, they were coming in very carefully, I'll tell you, (laughs) because you don't want to wake them up before it's time. (laughs) And so when they come in, uh, they would be coming over, and then they would drop it, and it would begin to uh, wriggle around. The problem was that the staff of Aaron went about and ate up all of the staffs of the Pharaoh or of the gods of Egypt. Now, how many magicians do you think came in there? My best guess is that it was eight, because I just imagine that they were representing every one of those categories. And what ended up happening was the uh, serpent of, of Moses ended up judging all of the gods of Egypt in one fell swoop there. And in doing so, the Pharaoh was hit with a very hard decision. You see, the thing is, the Pharaoh... Uh, is supposed to be the religious leader. He's the God on earth and stuff like that. Well, if, if that's the case, then he needs to be sincere about his religion. And what God was actually saying was, if you believe your own religion, forget me, if you believe your own religion, you're going to let the Hebrews go. And what God established was that the Pharaoh was not even sincere in his own religion because he wouldn't let them go. That was an awesome moment. You see, God uh, knew that the Pharaoh was evil, and he knew everything he was going to go through with all these plagues and all. But God gave the Pharaoh an opportunity to be a sincere, honest person. He missed it but he gave him that opportunity. Do you realize God does that with every evil person on earth? He gives us opportunity. There will be some calling along the way where we can show that we are for real. And God can bless it and use it and move us toward Jesus through that. And Pharaoh just was not going to let that happen. Um... Let me, uh, I'm, I'm going to be as quick as I can. I see I already missed it. Um, when they were in the wilderness, 
the Lord said, what is that you have in your hand? Uh, and Moses said, a staff. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it. He said, take it. But there's three more words there. Does anybody know what those other three words are? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Anybody? By the tail. He said, take it by the tail. So Moses reached out, took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. Folks, look at what was happening. God knew that Moses grew up in the Pharaoh's palace. He knew all about the Egyptians. If God just told him to pick that thing up, he would know how to do it. But what he told him to do was to pick it up in a way that meant certain death. And uh, it's pretty awesome that Moses did what he did. What would you have done? <laughs> yeah. You know, if I knew that this was God talking, I have to think that I would have picked it up and even risked death to do it. But something we have to know is that God is never going to give us a command that wouldn't be for our benefit. There is a reason that is adequate. And for all of the young people that I've talked with over the years, the one thing I just try to keep impressing upon them is that God has given us every sort of instruction in the book. And every one of those instructions is for our benefit here and there. And we would do well, even if it doesn't make sense, to know that God cares enough to give us the instructions we need to come to him. We just need to believe it and do it. God bless you and thank you.